Well, we will come to a time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We're going to talk about what it means for a few minutes, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to the book of Ephesians? Book of Ephesians, page 827, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. And when you found that, would you stand together with me and we'll read our passage for this morning? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. You read this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. I know everyone's like, is that it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Let me quickly pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time in his word and then we'll dig in. Spirit of God, we have already sensed your presence here with us. We know it is here and now we just ask that as we come to your word, would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears? Uh, we want to be those who sit underneath your word, those who receive what you want to speak to us rather than us telling you what you want, we want you to learn, or we want you to teach us. So reveal to us what you have today. This is a living word that accomplishes what it's sent out to do. That's what you promised. You will accomplish what your word is going to do when you send it out. So as you send it out to us, oh God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us, whatever it is. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, it's not always the case, I'm not presenting that, but something that I've experienced countless times, and I'm just going to fully acknowledge I've been guilty of participating in as well, is the prevalence of people who don't have kids telling people who do have kids how to best raise them. Has anyone been a part of this? Has anyone received this? Um, I'm just going to fully acknowledge to you that over the course of my life, I can remember all, all kinds of times before Sarah and I had kids that I just saw clearly, clearly the best course of action for my brother's kids and then my sister's kids and whatever parenting struggles they were dealing with. I saw clearly what they needed to do in order to help. If only they would just follow my sage advice and wisdom, which they never did, uh, and if you've been on the receiving end of this kind of advice, however charitably you responded, the, the, I think it's safe to say that most of us, we don't give a great deal of weight to those opinions. Not to say that you can't know anything if you don't have kids. Of course you can. But we don't give a great deal of weight to those opinions. And the reason is because that person offering the advice doesn't have a sufficient lived experience in order to give it sufficient warrant. You know, I would say things like, just take the toy away from him. Just tell them to go to bed and say they can't get out. And my sister and brother, they would just smile at me and say, thank you. Thank you. Just, just wait. But the problem with this is that we can take what is largely a legitimate devaluing of information in one setting and then apply it just wholeheartedly to another 
scenario, which is receiving advice and instruction from someone who's experienced failure in whatever it is they're talking about. We can just try to apply the exact same standard to them and imagining that it's only people who are successes. The successful people, those are the people who have valuable advice to give us about how to succeed and nobody else. And yet what that fails to appreciate is that what most people that we view as successful will tell you is that it was their failures rather than their successes that actually taught them the most. Which means those who failed greatly may just be those who have the most to teach us about how to succeed. Consider, for instance, Michael Jordan, arguably one of the greatest basketball players in all of history. He's quoted as saying, I missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. On 26 occasions, I've been entrusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I have failed over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. I love the fact that he's counted. (laughs) He actually knows how many, anyway. Or J.K. Rowling, who, who uh, authored all the Harry Potter series, if you've seen or read any of those things. In countless interviews, she said that when she wrote the very first Harry Potter book, she is divorced, uh, bankrupt, living on welfare, and the very first book she writes is rejected by dozens of publishers. Nobody even wants to pick it up. Finally, one is like, okay, but you know what? There's not much of a market for children's books. And I believe it's lived experiences of failures that lead to success, such as these over the course of human history that undoubtedly were some of the inspiration behind former U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt's famous quote from a a speech that's now known as just the man in the arena, where he writes, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out where the strong man stumbles or the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because, listen, there is no effort without error and shortcoming. And if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. I love that. It's on my wall. So we're beginning this new teaching series this morning through the book of Ephesians, titled Ephesians. Uh, with the subtitle, To Unite All Things in Him. And as I've said, we're going to take, actually, the majority of this new year now to work through this book, taking an occasional break here and there. We'll we'll break through the summer months and end, hopefully, just before Christmas, God willing. And the reason for such extended attention to such a small New Testament letter is because, yes, while it's absolutely possible to just zero in on every single minute detail and lose the big picture... As famous Welsh pastor and preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, those who imagine that by giving a rough division of this epistle according to chapters, that they have dealt with it adequately, display their ignorance. For when we come to the details, that is where we discover the wealth. Now, Lloyd-Jones, if you know, he went on to preach over 300 messages on Ephesians. That's probably one end of the spectrum which we're not going to do. What he's saying is you can't just say, well, let's see, Ephesians has got six chapters. Okay, we're going to do six messages on Ephesians. There you go. You guys know Ephesians. No, actually, there's there's so much more wealth in the details. So we'll, we'll find somewhere closer to the front end of the spectrum, but it's going to take us the year to, to work through it. 
But I spent all that time a moment ago talking about the invaluable advice and teaching of failures because we're spending an entire two, we're spending an entire message, as you just saw, looking at two verses of introduction, just greeting. And the reason is because the book of Ephesians is considered by many to be really the, the pinnacle of all Paul's New Testament writing. The most concise, profound teaching we have after Jesus' own recorded words uh, of the gospel message. What is the gospel? What does it mean? Uh, what are the intricacies of it? Uh, talking about Christian unity. Talking about life in the spirit. Talking about spiritual warfare. So many other things. And yet one of the easiest things in the world to forget is that the book of Ephesians was written by someone who even viewed himself as Christianity's greatest failure. And we'll look into that. We'll, we'll see more why he felt that way as we dig in this morning. But I would submit to you that there are, there's no more profound and hopeful combination of words in this letter, in, 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 in really maybe, maybe the entire New Testament, than these words that we read right at the beginning of Ephesians. Paul and Apostle of Christ Jesus. There's no more profound and hopeful combination of words than Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, because if you know the story of Paul, you know there was no one further from such a title than him. And yet, if it's true that there is no effort without error and shortcoming, and if, like me, your desire is to know and understand more and more deeply those essential truths of the faith, what is the gospel? How do we live together in Christian unity? How do I fight the spiritual enemies that come against me, and all these things that are taught here, and just to learn what these truths look like lived out in everyday life, then maybe as Christianity's greatest failure, Paul has the most to teach us of anyone. Now, after introducing himself here, if you look in verse 1, and naming the letter's recipients, Paul goes on in verse 2 there to speak a blessing, a blessing of grace and peace over those that he's writing to. And while this is a very common form of, of introduction for letter writing in this historical time period, those two words, grace and peace, particularly when you consider the source that Paul says they originate from, these actually form the two primary themes that run through the entire book of Ephesians. Namely, God's grace to us in saving us through the work of Jesus and the, the result of that grace, which is peace with God and others. So, in order to help us just frame the way we look at this passage this morning, I want to look at it in just two ways as well. We're going to look, first of all, about the way those two themes, grace and peace, worked out in the life of Paul. So we'll look, first of all, at grace and peace to me. This is as though Paul is speaking of himself. Grace and peace to me, and then... We'll look at how those themes worked out in the lives of those which Paul is writing to, which, if you know Jesus this morning as your Savior, includes you as well. And so we'll look next at grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to me. Grace and peace to you. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to that first verse in the book of Ephesians? Follow along with me as we begin this new series, this, this journey through the entire book of Ephesians, revealing the work of God in Jesus to unite all things together in him. Okay, so let's look first of all at grace and peace to me. Grace and peace 
to me. Now, it's been said before that one of the most powerful tools we have to actually be the witnesses that God has called us to be after thinking of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you is your personal testimony of salvation. One of the most powerful tools you have to be the witness God has called you to be, your personal testimony. And I'd say that's even more the case in a culture like we have today where personal experience, personal expression is, is held in such high regard. Your personal testimony. So someone can, they can dispute your theology. They can say, oh, you, that, that interpretation of that particular Bible verse, that's just your interpretation. I've got a different one. But it's a different thing altogether to try and refute someone saying, like we sang this morning, all I know is I was blind and now I can see. What do, you, what do you say to that? No, you weren't? Uh, I don't know. Like, I don't know how you, how you respond to that. Now, I don't fully understand all the thinking behind it, but if you grew up in the church particularly, you've either thought or you've heard somebody say, yeah, but my testimony is so boring. It's so boring. Oh, I, I, you know what? I, I wish I had a testimony like, and then fill in the name, whoever it is, blank. And blank is someone with this horrific background, with just filled with like drugs and sex and crime and abuse. If I had a testimony like that person, yeah, I would say what God had done. And I always, when people say that, I always want to say, really? That's what you wish? You, you wish that you had caused and experienced untold damage and abuse for yourself and others just so your testimony of how Jesus saved you would sound cooler? No, no, you don't. <laughs> because as someone who's had to walk something of a difficult path to Jesus myself, along with the testimony of countless other people who have pasts that are a thousand times more difficult than me, can I just tell you, we, we long for your boring testimony. We pray every day that our kids would have that boring, I just trusted Jesus and followed him testimony. Yep. Why? Because... While, yes and amen, the blood of Jesus has paid for every penalty for our past failures in full, the, the scars and the consequences of those actions remains. We still carry that stuff with us. My, my father worked for 35 years in corrections. When, when guys trusted Jesus, they didn't open up the door and say, well, off you go now. No, you still had to serve your sentence. Families that have been blown up, uh, Years of damage to our bodies from drug and alcohol abuse, whatever it is, those things don't disappear just because Jesus has forgiven you for all that. And beyond that, come on, every, every single testimony, every testimony is the story of God's grace to undeserving sinners. So it's not boring. It's a testimony of grace to undeserving sinners. But all of that to say, when you come to the beginning of this book of Ephesians, and you read right there at the beginning of verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, there's a story behind those words. There's a story there. And the great apostle Paul, he's got one of those testimonies, one of those harder testimonies that carries lots of baggage and scars with it. So much so that the summary of, of God's grace to him in the letter that he wrote to Timothy was, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's Paul's testimony. Now Paul drops all kinds of clues as to, uh, uh, throughout his writing as to why he believes that's the case. But one of the clearest accounts of both his former life as well as his conversion we read about in the book of Acts. 
So there in uh, Acts 8 and 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, we have three separate accounts of Paul's testimony. Passionate in his pursuit of the law, his training as a Pharisee, and zealous. Zealous in his persecution of the church and desire to rid the world of any who claim Jesus as the Messiah. He's described in Acts 9 as breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And then in Acts 26, this is Paul's testimony. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. How's that for the testimony of an apostle? An apostle, which is a, 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 a delegate, a divinely appointed messenger of Christ Jesus. That's the testimony of this apostle and the one who is the author of over 40% of the New Testament books. That's his testimony. Like, how, how's that even possible? How's that possible for someone who so violently persecuted Jesus and his church? Well, Paul tells us, actually. First of all, in verse 1, he says, It's by the will of God. That's how. It happened by the will of God, which means, first of all, this wasn't Paul's idea. This wasn't something he was pursuing or something that people put him up to. This was, Paul being an apostle was God's purpose, plan, and will in his life, and so it had to come about. But then, later in chapter 3, Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. So it was by the will of God, but it was also by a gift of grace. And then in 1 Corinthians 15... He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not in vain. So the reason that someone so at war with God and his church could become an apostle was because God willed it. But the means by which God accomplished that reconciliation was by his grace. It happened by his grace, which leads us now directly to that blessing that Paul speaks over the recipients of this letter in verse 2. Look with me there. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I said when we began, the form of introduction of this letter, although it sounds weird to us to begin with who the letter's from as opposed to ending with it, that's how we write letters. This was actually very common in Paul's day. All these Letters you'll read in the New Testament, they begin that way, usually with this is who's writing it and then to who it's to. Who it's to. And it was also, these were very common greetings in Paul's day. Uh, to say grace as you came to, into a house, peace to someone as you came into their home. This was common in Greek and Hebrew households. But what almost every commentator I read highlighted was that in speaking of God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ as the primary source of this grace and peace, that Paul is intending to communicate something much more than just a common greeting. For what is, what is it? What is the grace of God to us in Christ? What is it? Well, it's God's unmerited favor to us. It's, it's his free saving initiative towards us, as John Stott says it. It's getting something that we've neither earned nor deserved, in this case, our salvation. And what about the peace of God? What is the peace of God to us through Christ? Well, 
as Stott defines it, if, if grace is God's saving initiative, peace is what he has taken the initiative to do, namely, to reconcile sinners to himself and to each other in this new community. Or as Paul states plainly in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified, that is declared not guilty, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the blessing that Paul is speaking about here today. Because you see, as one who had been at war with God, who had been defiantly opposed to Christ himself, but then saved and reconciled by God's grace to him, as, as Paul encounters the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul began to understand his life as kind of a gospel metaphor for everybody, for the whole world. That although we all were separated from God, we are all hostile towards God from that moment in the garden when mankind first sinned in the Garden of Eden, we could be reconciled back to God. We could be reconciled by His grace, by His saving initiative towards us in sending Jesus, the promised rescuer, the, the, the reconciler, the, the Prince of Peace. And if you spent much time reading through the book of Ephesians, again, or if you just were listening when I began this morning, these are themes that you see all through now Ephesians. Again, you're going to see again and again the grace of God to us in Christ and peace with God through Christ. You're going to see it over and over again in Ephesians. But my point in all of this is that before Paul ever begins to speak, begins to write, begins to preach about grace and peace to others, he first came to know and powerfully experience the grace and peace of God to himself. Makes me wonder if the reason that Paul doesn't begin almost every single one of his letters this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, is not because he's trying to state his apostolic authority, but because again and again he just wants to acknowledge the, the gospel of grace and peace that he'd experienced himself. Paul, a, a persecutor of the church, Paul, the chief of sinners, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I think he found those words as profound and hopeful for himself. I think that's why he wanted to say it that way. He kept bringing it back. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But do you see now why I said when we began, why these are the most profound, hopeful combination of words for us as well? Profound because they make no sense combined together apart from the grace of God towards Paul and Jesus. And hopeful because if the grace of God in Jesus can bring about peace between God and Paul, it can bring about peace between God and anyone. But my question for you, first of all, in, this, in light of this profound hopeful reality for Paul is what about you? Do you know? The grace and peace of God from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ yourself? Do you know it personally? And not just, I, I don't mean like, do you just know about the grace and peace of God as something theologically true? Have you experienced those things as true? Do you know them experientially? So that your testimony is not, this is what the Bible says is true about what Jesus did for me. No, your testimony is, oh, I, was, I used to be blind and now I can see. Your testimony is, I used to hate God. I used to be at war with God, but by His grace, I am now at peace with Him. And not only do I have peace with God, I have the peace of God, and that's changed everything in my life. Is that your testimony? 
Because here's the thing, I believe the more you experience those realities as true, the more you understand again and again your deep need for peace with God, and as we understand that, it just highlights again and again His extravagant grace to us in purchasing us and in bringing about that freedom for us. The more you experience those realities as true, the more they will radically transform your witness, just as they radically transformed Paul's witness from someone who hated Jesus to becoming one of the greatest missionaries in the entire history of the church. And I think we need to experience those realities deeply, and we need to experience them regularly. Not just once, we need to experience them over and over again because I'm convinced of it. Hear me, I'm convinced that there is a direct correlation between your experience of grace and peace to me and your declaration of grace and peace to you. I think there's a one-to-one correlation between those two things. So we need to experience those realities as true again and again. God's grace and peace to me. And it will absolutely transform your declaration of that grace and peace to others. Okay, so that's grace and peace to me. The last thing I want to look at now is the product of Paul's experience of grace and peace to him as he now declares those profound hopeful realities to his readers. So let's look now at grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. And and we see those to whom Paul is addressing his blessing here in the second half of verse 1. Look with me there. He writes, To the saints in Ephesus. The faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a few things to unpack there, but just to quickly give you just a bit of a a history of Ephesus rather than just assuming you already know it. First of all, Ephesus was a wealthy port city in the Roman province of Asia, situated on the west coast of a modern country of Turkey. Scholars note it was a center of learning. It was positioned near several key trade routes, and although religiously pluralistic as all Roman cities were, its greatest claim to fame was the stewardship of the great temple of Artemis, which was actually listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And although Paul is said to have written this letter during his house arrest in Rome around AD 60, Paul actually knew this city of Ephesus quite well. We're told in Acts 19, it speaks of him ministering in this city for over three years. One of the first things you may have noticed, if you're a details person, and I'm with you there, you might have noticed a little footnote beside that word Ephesus in verse 1 there, which if you follow it down, says, some early manuscripts do not have in Ephesus. And you read that and you thought, hmm, weird. I wonder, what, I wonder what that's about. I, I don't want to spend a great deal of time here, but I do. I think it's worth at least noting that there is something of a debate amongst scholars because of those manuscripts that do not contain in Ephesus, which leads into question whether or not this letter was written to the church in Ephesus alone, or whether it was meant to be a circular letter that would be distributed to all kinds of different towns and villages around Ephesus, And this was just the first city that it was brought to, this man Tychius, who we read about in uh, chapter 6. He's bringing Paul's letter to Ephesians. Maybe it says in Ephesians because that's just the first city he came to. Either way, commentator uh, Clinton Arnold, I think, brings a bit more clarity for us in noting when we think of Ephesus, it's important not to think of one church building that held 250 people. Paul is addressing all of the Christians in the city of a quarter million people. 
And the intended readers probably span sizable radius around the city. In other words, in many uh, sorry, I lost my place. The, the letter is probably intended for dozens of house churches throughout the city of Ephesus and in many nearby villages and cities. By writing to Ephesus, Paul can address a great number of believers in Western Asia Minor. But something else you might have noticed as you're reading through are the two terms Paul uses to describe the recipients of the letter. You notice he calls them saints and he calls them the faithful. Saints. And the faithful. Now, saints is a word that we don't hear a lot today. Maybe we hear it in maybe Roman Catholic settings, speaking about praying to the saint of this or that. Uh, maybe if you're a New Orleans football fan, or, or maybe just people who are trying to decry the fact that they're not perfect. Now, I'm not saying I'm a saint here. That's usually the context we hear about saints today. But the, the actual Greek term, hagios, meaning holy or set apart ones, is a term that was commonly used throughout the Old Testament for the covenant people of God. That is, God's chosen nation created through Abraham and then set apart for himself. And in the New Testament, this term is actually used freely, and it's freely applied to all who are at peace with God through the grace of God in Jesus. It's not some special rank of, or class of Christian. It's applying to all Christians. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. Secondly, faithful. The faithful, on the other hand, is the Greek word pistos, meaning one who is characterized by steadfast affection or allegiance. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes in his work uh, here on this passage that this is the very same term Jesus uses when he's speaking to Thomas after he appears to him when he's been resurrected. If you remember this story, Jesus raises again, he comes to his disciples, but Thomas wasn't there, and he won't believe that it's happened. He says, no, 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 unless I, I touch the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my hand in his side, I won't believe Jesus has risen from the dead. And so next day, Jesus shows up, and he's like, okay, Thomas, let's go. Touch, touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. But then what he says to him is, stop doubting and pistos. Stop doubting and believe. Which means Paul is also characterizing those to whom he's writing as those who both trust in Jesus and also have a demonstrated faithfulness to him. Saints and the faithful. But the last thing to note, and this is so key, we need to hold on to this because it's just going to appear again and again in, in Ephesians, is that just as Paul qualified the grace and peace of, of his blessing in verse 2 with, from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, here in the second half of verse 1, he qualifies holy set-apart ones and the faithfulness of those he's writing to as applying solely to those who are, look, in Christ Jesus. You notice that? He says, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And it's the most missable, simplest statement here, just like it sounds like Christianese, until you keep reading Ephesians. And you just see the rest of the book over and over again. In Christ, with Christ, through Christ, in Christ, because of Christ, in Christ. You see it again and again and again and again until suddenly you realize, no, no, this is central. It's a central idea to everything Paul is writing in Ephesians. In fact, without which nothing is true that he's writing about if it's not connected to those two words, in Christ. It means everything for Paul. John Stott says it this way, to be in Christ 
is to be personally and vitally united to Christ, as branches are to the vine and members to the body, and thereby also to Christ's people. Paul's description of his readers is thus comprehensive. They are saints because they belong to God, and they are believers because they have trusted in Christ. Lloyd-Jones writes this, it means that the Christian is not only one who believes in Christ, he is in a real sense in Christ. He belongs to Him. He is united to Him. He is joined to Him. But the point Paul is making here to his readers is one which we also desperately need to know for ourselves today. And it's this. All who are in Christ, that is, all who are now at peace with God through the grace of Jesus, those who have been united to Him, those who are joined to Him, your holy set-apartness and your faithful trust and fidelity to God are already true. Did you know that? Those are present realities now, not, not some future level of Christianity that you need to attain to. Your saintliness, your set-apartness, your faithfulness to God is true now if you are in Christ. Which, listen, doesn't it all mean that there's not more, we don't have more to grow in personal holiness and maturity in this life? We do. But positionally, when God looks at you now, if you are in Christ, He sees a saint. He sees the perfection of Christ. He sees the faithfulness of Jesus, not you. He sees you in Christ now. That's what it means to be in Christ. These are true realities now, presently. Which is... Really hard to accept, isn't it? It's hard to believe because if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you already know that just because your sins are being forgiven doesn't mean you live a life of sinless perfection. I don't live like a saint now. I'm not perfectly faithful to Jesus all the time. And so hearing terms like saint and faithful applied to us can actually make us feel guilty more than hopeful because it feels so often untrue. But the hope for every single one of us here today is that just as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, is an impossibility made possible by the grace of God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, so are saint and faithful impossibilities made possible by grace and peace to you. As Jesus once told his disciples when they asked him, okay, well then, who then can be saved? Jesus said, no, with man this is impossible, but with God in Christ, all things are possible. It is possible, as hard as it is to believe. And the more we come to accept those realities as true, and the more we praise God for his grace to us in Jesus, because that's what we do when we realize that we praise him for his grace to us, what that leads us to then is then we seek to live out those realities more and more in our lives to the best of our ability, not to earn our saintliness, but because we come to understand that we already have it in Christ. For Paul, the entire message of Ephesians and the purpose of God's sending Jesus is about a peacemaking mission. He was sent on a peacemaking mission. When we were talking about this series leading up to it, I said, verse 10 actually sums up the entire point where Paul says, the purpose of God in sending Jesus in the fullness of time was to bring all things together, 
to unite things in heaven and on earth in him, in Christ, in order to make peace between God and man. We're going to be learning so much, much more about this in the coming weeks as we dig deeply into this book. But my prayer for each and every one of us today, myself included, is that just today, very simply, that we might know and powerfully experience the grace of God and the peace we have with Him because of it. You might really know it and feel it today, either for the very first time or all again for the thousandth time. Because I think it's true. For when we see the profound, hopeful results of grace and peace to Christianity's greatest failure, I think it's true. It, it really does teach us best about the peacemaking possibilities available in Jesus for everyday failures like you and me. Grace that makes it possible for a persecutor to be an apostle. Grace that, that makes saints out of sinners. Grace that makes faithful followers of warring rebels. Thanks be to God. Amen.